0: This is Undark. We're a magazine devoted to exploring the intersection of science and society, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to Episode 25. I'm David Corcoran. For our cover story, a number that shocked me when I read it, 37 million. That's the number of American homes that still have lead paint. As we know all too well, lead is toxic, especially for children. It can damage developing nervous systems and lead to lower IQs and behavior problems. What to do about it, though, has been a problem forever. And as Charles Schmidt reports in Undark, the problem is only getting more tangled and frustrating. Charles Schmidt joins us now. Charlie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Great to be here, David. Thanks for having me.
0: So, uh, first of all, am I right to be surprised at that number, that uh, lead contamination is still such a big problem in the U.S.? I I don't recall reading that much about it, uh, except in regard to those uh, lead-coated pipes in Flint, Michigan.
1: Well, the, the Flint situation, that was a drinking water problem. Um, and, you know, it's certainly an important one. But the number that you cite, 37 million homes still covered to some degree in lead paint. That's that's from a, that's from a survey that was conducted by the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And it's really it stayed fairly constant. The, the number prior uh, in 2000 was 38 million. So uh, we, we definitely have a big problem with lead contaminated houses in the, in the country. And most of them are, um, and, well, ac- all of them actually are, uh, were built prior to 1978, which is the year that, that lead paint was banned. And so it's really a problem in older homes.
0: And how do children take up the lead? I, I, I've I've heard about uh, eating paint chips uh, that are that are uh, lead paint. Um, is, is that generally sort of how how uh, it gets into the body?
1: Yeah, absolutely. What we're talking about here are, are older homes, typically in poor neighborhoods, homes that aren't well maintained, where the lead paint is flaking off, and uh, there's a lot of lead, 75% lead by weight typically, and it's sweet so kids like how it tastes and it doesn't take much to have an impact on the brain how did you get interested in this subject charlie well i've been reporting on environmental health issues for a long time and and this really has come out of years of reporting and it always struck me you know that lead is a public health issue that seems to come up cyclically in the press you know you think it's over and suddenly there it is again and i was wondering you know like why are we getting hung up on this where why is this an issue that we can't seem to fix and and that was the motivation for for starting to write the story
0: Charlie, a lot of your story centers around uh, rather complicated statistical uh, concepts. Uh, So I'm going to ask you to try to simplify as much as you can uh, for our listeners. Um, A a very big part of the issue revolves around a concept known as reference level. What does that mean exactly?
1: Well, the reference level is is a statistical measure that you know describes average blood lead levels in in sort of the majority of the population so what it really, it's pegged to something called the 97.5 percentile, meaning that 97.5 percent of the population has a level lower than the reference level, right? So right now, the reference level is five micrograms per deciliter. That means 97.5 percent of the population has a blood level. And this is, again, we're talking about children here, younger than six, have blood lead levels less than five micrograms per deciliter. So if you have a level that is over that, then you're sort of out Outside this majority.
0: Um, you write that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that's CDC, uh, wants to lower the benchmark for allowable blood levels in children. That is, make the standards for lead exposure even tougher than they are now. But some of the experts you spoke to think this is a bad idea. Why is
1: that? So what we have now, the reference level is currently set at 5 micrograms per deciliter. And the CDC monitors that level and then updates it every four years. And it's set to, uh, to now to drop to 3.5. And that's to reflect, you know, where, where the current averages are nationally now. But some of the experts I, I speak to think that's just asking too much of the reference level. It's misinterpreted as a diagnostic threshold for lead poisoning, which it isn't. And uh, it's triggering interventions for kids that have these really low exposures. And most of them are from middle and upper middle class backgrounds. So when you drop the reference level, even though it's coming from a well-intentioned place, the the worry is, according to the sources I spoke to, is that it's just going to divert resources away from the inner cities and the poorer neighborhoods where they're really needed. And at the same time, it can cause a lot of confusion over which kids are are really lead poison and, and which ones are not.
0: And the thinking is that, uh, given that uh, the public health uh, resources are limited, uh, that there isn't, there just isn't that much money to address this problem. If you lower this threshold. Um, you'll uh, sweep more kids into the picture, kids who are exposed to uh, really minuscule amounts of lead, and uh, some of the resources will uh, therefore go to them to uh, monitoring their blood levels and doing interventions to keep them from getting exposed, and therefore the uh, kids who are really getting uh, the most exposure are uh, likely to be neglected.
1: Yeah, that- That's exactly true. And you can look back, in fact, what happened historically. um, Back in 2012, for example, the Centers for Disease Control dropped um, what was then called the action level, which was 10 micrograms per deciliter. They dropped it down to what we now call the reference level, which is five. So they cut that level in half. And at the same time, uh, the CDC's budget, for lead poisoning prevention control was cut by something like 90 percent. So the effect of that was that you dramatically increased the numbers of kids that were considered to be lead poisoned at the same time that you were cutting way back on resources to deal with them. And, And there's a concern that the same thing could happen right now. So if we drop the level from five to 3.5 which is uh, what the Centers for Disease Control wants to do um, according to one survey that I read the numbers of kids could go up sevenfold so you'd have literally hundreds of thousands of children conceivably being drawn into the system and uh, and meanwhile the Trump administration uh, some reporting has shown that they're that they would like to cut billions of dollars out of lead poisoning prevention and so you know you could have a repeat of what happened back in 2012 dropping that level bringing a whole bunch of new kids into the system that have sort of questionable poisoning diverting funds away from the poorer kids that really need it and at the same time cutting resources to be able to deal with any of them
0: so uh, let's talk about one of those kids uh, you interview a mom in uh, east columbus ohio uh with uh, a young uh, young boy named michael uh talk about
1: them Sure. Uh, this is Shikara Norris. She moved into uh, uh, her home in East Columbus. Uh, she had five children at the time. She was pregnant with her sixth. Um, Michael was uh, was very young and he wound up with uh, 30 micrograms per deciliter in his blood. So this was uh, an older house. Uh, uh, definitely. Uh, I think it was 1920 was what the house dated back to in a poor neighborhood, a crime ridden neighborhood, as, as she told me. And uh, and so 30 micrograms per deciliter is is way over the five microgram per deciliter threshold. So he obviously had a big problem, but it wasn't only him. All the kids were actually poisoned uh, or exposed to some degree, but not as much as as he had been. And uh, and then interestingly, what they were told by um, the city health department was that they'd have to find another place for Michael to live. And he ended up moving with, with his godmother. And the other children, they were told, could only stay in the one room where where the lowest there was one room in particular where the lead levels were low. They were advised to keep all their children in that room. Um, So it was really a fiasco. And uh, they didn't have the money to move. Um, But then they they ended up moving after that to two successive different homes. And, uh, you know, ironically, those homes were also lead contaminated, older houses in East Columbus. So, yeah, it was a real problem for them.
0: So, uh, the experts and uh, advocates that you talked to for your story, what kinds of measures do they advocate to try to get this problem under control?
1: I think what everybody agrees on is that we need to do more about uh, getting to the to the lead in the homes before the children get exposed. So, you know, you have to set that as your first condition, and then the question is how you go about doing it. Uh, and, and right now, what we have is a system uh, where, in, in, in most parts of the country, you wait for the for the blood lead level to rise above a particular threshold, and that will then trigger some kind of a response. Uh, the problem is for the kids, that's too late because lead's effects on the brain are uh, are irreversible. Um, although they can be ameliorated to some degree, you know, with 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 treatment. Um, dietary changes, if you can create a cognitively stimulating environment for the child as he's growing up, that can have a positive impact on on brain wiring and and you can uh, overcome maybe some of the deficits that you'd expect. But at at the much higher levels of exposure, you know, that toxicity is irreversible. And so what they argue for is something called primary prevention, where um, instead of waiting for the lead levels to go up and then responding to find mechanisms to go in and actually clean the lead up, in the homes before the children are are exposed, and uh, and and the approaches for doing that vary from from state to state, and some aren't doing it at all.
0: This is kind of what we did back in the 70s when we outlawed uh, leaded gas and uh, and lead paint. Uh, these two two very big prevention measures, which unfortunately, don't seem to have eliminated the problem.
1: No, but taking the lead out of gasoline had a huge impact on national blood lead levels. I mean, if you look at the data, they plummeted dramatically. Uh, Back in the 1970s, the average blood lead level in in everybody was, uh, you know, about 15 to 16 micrograms per deciliter. So about three times higher than what the reference level is now.
0: Let's talk about the effects of the lead um, for kids who have these uh, very high levels of lead in their blood. What are the developmental effects? Uh, Does it affect their performance in school, affect their behavior? What, What can they look forward to as they grow up?
1: Well, the main thing that people are concerned about with lead exposures are drops in IQ. It literally has an effect on, on your intelligence, and you can graph statistically how IQ will drop as a function of increasing exposure, right? So the more lead that you have in, in your blood, the lower your IQ is going to fall. So that effect is, is worse for the kids at very high levels of exposure. Um, those kids definitely can have severe cognitive deficits you know you, you you hear about kids that have been poisoned in you know 45 50 60 80 micrograms per deciliter um, I, I spoke to a, a doctor one time that told me just a tragic story about a little girl that she had known in her practice and and that kid came in with acute lead poisoning um, was treated with chelating drugs that that pull the lead out out of the blood and and flush it out in urine that's the first thing they do it's a life-saving Measure, but in the next week, she saw the kid and 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 who could no longer count to ten. Um, so you you can you can have big problems for kids at these higher uh, exposure levels. But for the kids that are at the much lower exposure levels, and we're talking about in particular less than ten, what what doctors will typically do, and and the pediatrician that I spoke to in this story, Nicholas Newman, um, he there's a few things that they will try to do to sort of um, compensate for the effect of lead. Uh, First of all you can try to uh, reduce its absorption in the gut by giving diets that are high in vitamins and one of the most important things you want to do in addition to these dietary improvements is just Spend a lot of time trying to create cognitively interesting and stimulating environments for a child to, to just help that brain wiring. So doing that can bolster compensatory mechanisms in the brain. You can help the brain compensate for the effect of lead. And you may still continue to have some effect from it, but it's not going to be uh, as a parent. So I mean, the outlook for kids at very low exposure levels can be pretty good depending on, you know, on parenting and uh, diet. and and, and the right kind of home environment and school environment.
0: And uh, what about the outlook for the nation as a whole? If you you know got out your crystal ball and looked uh, 20 years into the future, do uh, you think we're gonna have this problem under control?
1: I think that there's a lot of um interest in the states right now, especially to, to do something about it. You have more states looking into primary prevention, trying to deal with lead problems in these dilapidated houses. And just with time, since we don't, since lead paint isn't being sold anymore, uh, at least domestically in the United States, it's, it's a problem that with time is going to slowly, slowly uh, dissipate.
0: And what is the practical effect of defining the reference level at this lower number, 3.5?
1: Really, for the CDC, it's it's a way of tracking what's happening with blood lead levels in the population. And what they will argue is that they will by by honing in now on the kids that are um, higher than 3.5, they're just continuing to look with greater and greater resolution um, at where kids with elevated blood lead levels are in the population. So it does have that practical benefit. The problem becomes when you start to use the reference level, as a trigger for some kind of intervention because as i said before those are very very low levels and if you start to devote a lot of resources you know to to working with families at these very low levels then you're potentially diverting resources away from the kids that are really much more highly poisoned that, that need them more
0: Charles Schmidt is a recipient of the National Association of Science Writers Science and Society Journalism Award. His work has appeared in Science, Nature, Biotechnology, Scientific American, Discover Magazine, and now of course on Dark. He's the author of our case study this month on lead in children. Thanks a lot for doing the story and for coming onto the podcast to talk about it.
1: It was my pleasure, David. Thank you very much.
0: For our segment on science and the media, we're joined by Vanessa Shapani. She reports and writes for an Undark partner called SciCheck, and I'm going to let her tell you what that is. Uh, Vanessa, welcome.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, So SciCheck, that's S-C-I-C-H-E-C-K.org, and you call yourself a writer and a philosopher of science. So explain what SciCheck is and explain what you do.
2: So uh, SciCheck is a project of factcheck.org, which is based at the Annenberg Public Policy Center uh, here at the University of Pennsylvania. And it's my job to uh, specifically look at claims about science made by U.S. politicians. So I have always kind of seen myself as someone who is half journalist, half Uh, philosopher, and I have a a master's in the history and philosophy of science, um, and and a bachelor's in philosophy as well. Um, It's very useful. So the way that politicians often twist science uh, has something to do with how they look at the scientific process and the scientific method. Um, So an example that I often give is uh, politicians might say something like, well, we don't want to do anything about climate change because we don't have 100% certainty that climate change is occurring. But the fact of the matter is, is that scientists don't really have 100% certainty about anything, so that, that argument is, is kind of faulty. Science is not based on proof. It's based on evidence to support or refute a certain theory. Um, so when I look at those arguments that, that politicians make, about science, uh, I at least believe that my expertise in philosophy, um, specifically the philosophy of science, helps me get at why those claims might be faulty. In addition to just, you know, being a journalist and being able to um, dive into the scientific literature and, and pick out the, the best papers that support or don't support a certain... Claim.
0: So, Vanessa, for a side check this month, we uh, reprinted your article in Undark. You dived into this whole debate about the school shooting in Parkland, Florida in February. You came at it from a different angle from most of the news coverage. You looked into a claim that is often made about exposure to violence in the media. And here's President Trump uh, in a speech on February 22nd, which was eight days after. After the shooting in Parklands.
3: Well, you mentioned the internet. We have to look at the internet because a lot of bad things are happening to young kids and young minds, and their minds are being formed. And uh, we have to do something about uh, maybe what they're seeing and how they're seeing it. And also, video games. I'm hearing more and more people say the level of violence on video games is really shaping young people's thoughts.
0: This seems kind of intuitive. I mean, it's uh, a lot of people believe that exposure to uh, media violence, especially uh, you know violent games and violent movies and so on, does uh, play a role in uh, in actual violence. But uh, just because something sounds uh, sort of like common sense, doesn't mean that it stands up under scrutiny. So how did you explore this whole question of whether video games, movies, and so on uh, actually lead to violent behavior?
2: A lot of popular media articles looked at the link between mass shootings and violent media or violence and violent media. And they kind of either just dropped very shortly or almost completely ignored any sort of link between an increase in aggression and violent media. And this was actually one thing that is a very important distinction uh, for researchers in the field. So aggression to them is, is a minor form of violence. So they have this saying that you know all forms of violence are forms of aggression, but not all forms of aggression are forms of violence. So it was important for me to look at The whole spectrum of behavior in this area. And it really depends on what behavior or thought or emotion we're talking about. So there was a a report by um, the American Psychological uh, Association that found that there is sufficient research to suggest that video games in particular, violent video games, are having an effect on how children over 14, so that was another little minor nuance thing. A lot of studies haven't actually been done on kids that are very young. So we're looking at young adults and, and uh, older teenagers. Um, but they found that there is an effect of violent video games on the thoughts, emotions, and uh, behaviors, uh, aggressive behaviors. But it not, doesn't necessarily make children, or adults, mass shooters.
0: So how do scientists know this? How, how, how do they study the relationship between uh, exposure to violence in the media and the actual aggressive behavior?
2: So they do it in three ways. And you need studies, three different kinds of studies to kind of converge towards a uh, having a well-supported causal link. So they look at cross-sectional studies and these are studies that will just link one thing to another thing. And they try to control, so in this case, it would be like aggressive behaviors to watching a half an hour of violent television um, or playing a half an hour of violent video games. So they'll link these two things uh, and they'll try and control based on other studies, uh, for uh, other factors that affect aggression. So you would, like other factors might be uh, how they're raised by their parents. Um, and then they'll, based on just the correlation, so that's a, a very important thing to mention, that this is just a correlation, it's not causation. <laughs> based on the, those studies, there have, there is Uh, support for this idea that there is a link between aggressive behaviors, thoughts, and emotions and playing violent video games. But that alone is not enough to support the link, the causal link. So scientists also do longitudinal studies, and these studies actually follow one group of people as their children until they're adults and says, okay, well these people played this amount of video games and this other control group played a lot less, or none, And then they follow them into adulthood. And along the way, they're also uh, collecting data for specific individuals on how they were raised and what other potential risk factors they were exposed to. Um, And then at the end of the longitudinal study, they'll say, OK, based on this group of people, this is the link that we have found or have not found. And then a third and and those studies are, are very hard to conduct because they take years, if not decades, um, to collect data. And that takes a lot of money. Um, the third kind of study is an experiment, uh, which is the kind of study that would be able to provide the most causal evidence. So you can actually manipulate, uh, certain factors. Um, but on the other hand, experiments are limited because they're they're done in uh, laboratories, and laboratories aren't <laughs> quite exactly how we live in the real world. So the way that scientists look at it is, okay, well, all of these studies have their pluses and minuses, uh, and they kind of uh, fit together as a puzzle. They kind of um, meet each other. And if you put them all together, that is enough inform- data to actually infer a causal link between aggression and uh, violent video games or violent TV.
0: And how strong is the link?
2: So it depends on the kind of study. So the researchers at the APA, uh, the authors who looked at the the link, they found a link. They said, okay, we've got enough evidence from all of these studies to say that there is a causal link. However, later on, uh, researchers have looked at these studies and found that the experimental literature might be subject to something called publication bias. So this is uh, a phenomenon that happens in psychology. It can also happen in other forms of science where it's more likely that a researcher will be able to publish or will be interested in publishing a positive result So if you have a a body of literature that has a higher likelihood of publishing positive results, that's going to skew the whole body of literature towards saying, OK, well, there actually is a link here. So uh, a group of researchers actually who are affiliated with the Annenberg Public Policy Center, I should mention, found that experimental data is subject to publication bias. However, cross-sectional studies were not. uh, So that's an important distinction. Whereas they did not look at longitudinal studies because there really just aren't enough of them um, because they're very hard to conduct. The last thing I'll mention is that the researchers who originally did the the meta-analysis on that subject uh, went back and looked at the research again and said, no, we still think that this is a societal concern. The effect size is is not as small as, as these people who looked at our research before. So we still think it's a societal concern. So the, the moral of the story is that there's still debate um, over aggression, but there's more research to suggest that there is a link than there isn't a link.
0: Do social scientists uh, have anything to say about it? Like a specific act of violence, like this uh, young man who was accused of um, murdering 17 people? was he affected by the uh, violence he was exposed to in video games or or uh, on TV?
2: So it was reported that the uh, shooter at Stoneman Douglas did play a lot of violent video games, but pretty much every single researcher that I talked to for this this article said that you can't really have solid causal evidence for something like mass shootings, uh, because they're actually a statistically rare event. And in order to have a a solid link between one phenomenon and another, you need a lot of instances of that phenomenon. So when you look at uh, the shooter at Stoneman Douglas, all you can really provide for him is anecdotal evidence. And that's an important distinction between statistical evidence, which is really what I looked at. You could point out that he played video games, but to say that video games played a role in him uh, committing that act is is far from scientific.
0: Yeah, it seems like only common sense to say that lots and lots of kids play violent video games or 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 go to movies where, uh, that, that are you know shoot 'em ups, uh, but relatively few kids grow up to be lawbreakers, much less mass killers.
2: Right. That's an, actually a very important uh, point. And one thing that a lot of the researchers that I talked with said is that you, that's why I, I tried to make a, a, a point in, in the very top of my article to say that this is a risk factor, not a cause. And, th- and that's an important distinction. So when you look at why people behave or think or feel in the way that they think or feel or behave... Uh, there are a number of different factors that are interacting in the real world within them that they're affected by. And if you look at... So you're right. The majority of kids who play violent video games or watch violent television, they do not become mass murderers. So what scientists told me was that you need the convergence of a lot of different risk factors to actually lead a person to commit these kind of acts. Um... And so if you've got just a kid who uh, is not, whose parental uh, parenting is not a violent form of parenting uh, and they don't have any other sort of risk factors for, uh, for violence, then if they play video games, they've only got one risk factor among many. But if you pile all the risk factors together, the probability that someone will become violent increases with every risk factor. So that's why you see a lot of children who play violent video games and don't become violent.
0: And we we shouldn't let it pass that one of the risk factors is uh, the availability of guns to do the shooting with.
2: Right. Yeah. So that completely unprompted. Um, I just asked uh, the researchers who I contacted, I just asked them, okay, well, we've got violent media. What about other risk factors? I did not say anything about guns. And every single one of them said, well, one thing that is very unique to the United States is our accessibility to guns. And one researcher I spoke with also pointed out his argument was that, okay, well, it is unique to the United States that we have a higher accessibility to guns than other developed countries. So, if we're going to look at the debate on whether or not we should regulate media violence more or less, well, let's if <laughs> if there isn't going to be action on gun violence, then maybe we should have action on other things because we're piling a lot of risk factors all on top of each other. Uh, that's not that's that's more of an opinion, so that's not something that would necessarily go into a factcheck.org article, but it is worth mentioning um, that given the climate that we have in the United States when it comes to accessibility of guns, um, it might mean that we regulate media violence differently than another country might. That was his argument.
0: Listeners, you can find Vanessa Schipani's article about, uh, the, called The Truth About Media Violence on our website on dark.org. Vanessa Schiapani is a science journalist and philosopher of science at factcheck.org, which is part of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Vanessa, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Chronic disease is just an abstract concept until it comes for somebody close to you. For reporter Garrett Tiedemann, a protein disorder called alpha-1-AAT deficiency is all too personal. Here's Garrett with the story.
3: Can you look just to see if I did it right, you know, where that cord comes out? Did I plug it in okay? I was getting so out of breath, I thought I did okay. You have to turn it off, right?
4: For a patient with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, getting on with a day can be a Herculean task. For my mom, diagnosis has been a double-edged sword. It means she can get treatment, but that treatment also happens to be a 5.6-pound portable oxygen tank when filled. When you have 23% lung capacity, there is no choice but to augment your day with an oxygen tank. Puffs of air echoing time like a clock, dictating the rhythm of every change.
3: You're sitting there knowing you need this oxygen, <laughs> and yet you're not able to get it off the main storage unit, and so you spend your time looking at this unit thinking, now how am I going to get this off? So it can be a struggle, and it's stressful because you wonder if, Are you going to be able to manage to get it filled without any problem? Or is it going to freeze up? And so then you're going to have to get a screwdriver and try to pry it loose so that you can take your larger tank as well as your small one.
4: The oxygen tank is a permanent part of our lives now because there is no cure. Our health will gradually decline over time.
3: Most people don't understand How gradually limiting it is. Um, You know, part of what keeps our lungs healthy is, as healthy as possible, is being able to exercise, you know, five to six days a week. And although I do that religiously, it continues to have, you know, extreme fatigue that comes along with um, having shortness of breath and really needing oxygen.
4: Alpha 1 and trypsin, also called AAT is a protein made in the liver. Normally the protein travels through the bloodstream and helps protect the body's organs from the harmful effects of other proteins. The lungs are one of the main organs that the AAT protein protects. AAT deficiency occurs if the AAT proteins made in the liver aren't the right shape. They get stuck inside liver cells and can't get into the bloodstream. As a result, not enough AAT proteins travel to the lungs to protect them. This increases the risk of lung disease. Doctors don't know how many people have AAT deficiency Many people who have the condition may not know they have it. Estimates vary from 1 in 1,600 to about 1 in every 5,000 people. Without AAT, the lungs degrade the same way they do in emphysema patients. Weekly infusions replenish the missing protein in the lungs, creating a stopgap that slows the disease, but not forever. To get to the treatment stage, though, you first need a diagnosis. And that in itself takes doing.
3: Typically, most patients can be misdiagnosed with asthma or COPD for many, many years. I went through um, a series of three pulmonologists, and they never did the blood test required to be able to diagnose alpha-1, nor was that brought up in the discussion of what was causing my problems.
4: It's a simple blood test, a pinprick the one with lasting
3: consequences. Our lives tend to be, you know, tipped upside down. I have been in a professional career for almost 40 years, and I was very active and involved and loved sports when I was younger. And yet, as the shortness of breath continued, it becomes much more difficult to be engaged in what you really want to be able to do.
4: I've watched my mom's health decline for most of my life memories of a more active parent replaced by the reality of one who increasingly needs help and support. And yet she persists. She stays active and works to improve the lives of existing and newly diagnosed patients every day, playing the part of the advocate she wished she'd had during her diagnosis.
3: I've been able to really do some good work educating doctors, really reinforcing how they need to be testing. I think for most of us who have Alpha 1, We struggle a lot trying to figure out so much of how we're going to adapt our lives.
4: Without a cure, and without lots of researchers actively searching for one, patients rely on approaches that hold it at bay. There's no way around the fact that my mom will eventually die from complications of this disease. Every cough or sneeze possibly conduit to pneumonia or bronchitis. Illness is almost insurmountable for a patient with Alpha-1. But she chooses not to focus on that. Her goal is to get up every day, to go forth with purpose
3: and resolve. What I have to do is when I'm filling the tank, it's very loud initially. And then as it goes along, the loudness gets less. And then what happens is I have to listen for it to do the one sputter. The very first time when that sputter occurs, I have to release the lever which tells me that it's full, the Helios is full.
4: It's hard enough being attached to a machine around your home. But when you need to leave, you have to fill portable concentrators, multiple ones for a day, equipment that weighs down every movement. It would be enough to discourage a person from ever going outside again. But not my mom.
3: So the struggles are constantly in front of us, But it's the kind of thing that also challenges it because I refuse to let it get the best of me. I'm an optimist and I'm positive and I'm always trying to figure out ways to make things easier.
4: For Undark, I'm Garrett Tiedemann.
0: And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. Special thanks to Lucas Randall Owens. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until then, I'm David Corcoran for Undark.